used virtually every piece of equipment aboard this craft in attaining orbit. You mean three of us must stay behind? Yes. And who's to choose? As commanding officer, the choice will be mine. Sulu, prepare to abandon search. Set course for Marcus 3. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, brushing off my cape. <laughs> and we're here this week to check in with a classic episode. We've been doing a few of these. We did Darmok, um, we did um, In the Pale Moonlight. And now we are going to talk about the TOS episode, the Galileo Seven. Yeah, look, we could have gone to you know something like a mock time, you know, City on the Edge, you know, Mirror Mirror, tr- uh, you know, Trouble with Tribbles. I-, I think those ones have they they've been done quite a bit, and I I, I just wonder if there's more kind of uh, discourse to happen with more more of those uh, under the radar kind of classics, but still a total classic episode of the original series. Yeah, it's one that when I was revisiting it, I began to think to myself, um, is this the first great Spock story? And, you know, you look back on the episodes that aired before this, and you've got some decent stuff in the menagerie. Um, he has some really strong moments in Naked Time, but I think this is the first real great examination of the Spock character. He's a layered character versus kind of a more of a one-note character that is played by an incredibly charismatic actor. Because I, I think preceding this, a lot of it was, you know, like Leonard Nimoy raising his eyebrow, um, commenting on logic. Whereas this, he does have a full-on character arc, and he does change uh, after this episode. Like, he does have kind of a better understanding of how to take command, and, and we see that unfold. Like, this is an episode that matters in the journey of Spock. And TOS is not a serialized show, but you do see the journey of Spock through not just TOS, but also into the films where... We don't blink an eye when Spock's in command later on in the show as well as in the films. And that journey really does start here. So it's like one of the really strong contributions that TOS made continuity-wise in terms of carrying, you know, an arc of a character. Because, like, a lot of the Kirk journey, I feel like, happens in the movies. Uh, I don't know that Kirk has as many journeys on the show. Whereas it feels like Spock, they really do develop. Because, you know, you go back to him laughing at flowers in the cage to um, kind of where we see him here and then where we end off with the series, he does change quite a bit. I just keep thinking of his line in a mock time, Jim! <laughs> like, you know, like, like, it is a character that has, like, so many layers to it. And I think this is one of the most important episodes. And just a little background, you know, this episode was uh, story credit from one Oliver Crawford. Uh, telepay uh, credit goes to him as well with a co-credit from S. Barr David. And this was directed by one Robert Gist, or, or Gist, G-I-S-T. Don't know how it should be pronounced, but uh, I think this is a pretty well-directed episode, if I may say so myself. Now, I actually did a little bit of digging on Robert Gist. I'm going to assume it's Gist. I have no idea. But um, did you know he was an actor? Like, he did quite a lot of character acting, and he was actually one of the detectives investigating Farley Granger in Strangers on a Train. I did not know that. Hmm. And he only did one Star Trek episode. He did other shows. I think he did a Mission Impossible. You know, he kind of bounced around 60s, 70s network TV. But yeah. We've talked about this before, just in the last few weeks, how there are kind of two sorts of streams of directors. There are the visual directors, the ones that know, like, have that kind of technical brilliance. They know exactly how they want to do storytelling. Uh, through a visual medium by you know amazing you with shots um, that sort of stuff the cinematography and then the other stream is kind of those 
actor directors. And I don't mean it literally, but more of those directors that really work with actors. They know how they respond. They want to get an amazing performance and they might leave the, the visual stuff, the technical stuff to the, uh, the assistant director or, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, second unit, uh, director in, in those situations. Uh, the cinematographer also plays a big part. So it's just interesting. I, I, I think Robert just, uh, was able to get something really interesting out of Leonard Nimoy, though, of course, this is 60s television and, and I have to believe that Nimoy probably knew his character quite well, you know, 17 episodes into season one. Well, it feels like they knew Spock pretty early. You know, you have scenes of him playing 3D chess with Kirk right off the bat. I think in, well, the airing order is uh, obviously very confused, but he's showing up having conversation scenes with Kirk right from where no man has gone before. And it's very clear that they've nailed down the character following up on the cage. Like, obviously with the cage, they weren't as certain who that character was, but while other characters take some time to figure out, it feels like Spock was one they nailed down pretty easy. And I think it's really the hook of he is a logical character. And they figured out very quickly how to make that compelling versus make him a walking computer. And just if it's been a little while since listeners have tuned into or watched this episode, the gist of it, not not the rubber gist, but <laughs> um, essentially they, uh, a, a seven-member shuttlecraft crashes onto a planet inhabited by giant cavemen and it is undetectable based on the enterprise's sensors so it's up to them to lift off repair all the damages try not to get killed by these cavemen and make it back to the enterprise meanwhile on the enterprise there is this uh, galactic commissioner paris who is intent on uh, getting medical supplies to his colony, which can, it's called New Paris. Um, that's if I started a colony and I called it New Orton. Okay, like, I actually looked this up on IMDb. His name's actually Ferris, but I heard Paris oh. through the whole episode as well. So believe me, had I not looked that up, I would have been making the same error. I'd rather believe what I just uh, erroneously <laughs> told everybody because it, it was just hilarious to me. Well, it's actually a tribute to um, Admiral Paris. <laughs> well, okay, because now I, I'm going to have to throw away half my notes because I was going to be like, was this character supposed to be related to like Thomas Eugene Paris? Or remember in Star Trek Beyond, there was an Admiral Paris in, in that one too. Cam, um, all of those uh, divergences uh, and tangents I, I was going to spend uh, you know, at least 15 minutes on all uh, condensed into the, the, those uh, two sentences I just shared with you. I, I apologize, people. Well, okay, wasn't um, Alice Eve's character in Into Darkness calling herself Carol Ferris off the bat? Oh, was she? I, I don't recall, I but I can totally believe I think she was. It. So maybe we can um, retcon this, that she was posing as the daughter of Commissioner Ferris. <laughs> I, I'd prefer if she was uh, her last, her fake last name was Farrell. <laughs> Who? Okay. I, I'm Carol Farrell. <laughs> Who is more charismatic, um, Commissioner Ferris or Admiral Marcus? Is this even really a question? Uh, <laughs> Admiral Marcus, of course, right? He seems like a fun guy, sure. Well, it's just I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the performance, you know, uh, that we got from Peter Weller. Uh, I got to give Peter Weller props. You know, there's a reason why they kept bringing him back for Star Trek uh, antagonists, right? Oh, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, because he did two fairly close together, too. It's not even like they waited a while. So, look, most of the action is taking place on the planet. It is a Spock story, but I really do think that uh, the, the Great Commissioner serves as, like, just a wonderful plot device because you've got the countdown clock against Kirk. This caped commissioner is standing on the bridge the entire time, <laughs> just, like, breathing down Kirk's neck. I don't know why Kirk just didn't usher him over to his quarters or something like that, but it really did serve a purpose here, and... You know, I'll jump to the end, though, but I just thought it was such an effective uh, moment of building tension when, you know, it was unclear whether the Enterprise is going to beam them out on time just because of all the trappings that they had been building up to throughout this episode. And I don't know, I, I just thought that the the Ferris character worked much better as kind of the, uh, the antagonist than you usually expect from these kind of stock characters. Yeah, he has personality. And the cape definitely <laughs> contributes a lot but one thing i've come to really love in tos is annoyed kirk because i think shatner plays that really well and i don't think shatner's acting is he well maybe not but you removed ferris from the situation and you have kirk desperate trying to solve these problems 
but you're not seeing him really bounce off anyone. You're seeing him just like give orders to uh, Uhura and Sulu through the episode, which is only so interesting dramatically. Whereas you introduce this character, and not only do you have the ticking clock, you have this really aggravating commissioner just barking at Kirk, and you're getting the reaction shots, and you have Shatner having to actually have discussions and dialogues with this character where he wouldn't normally be doing that at all. So it's actually giving Shatner something to do in an episode where he could be a bit of an afterthought. The way that sometimes TNG, for example, will give them a tech problem, and a lot of the tech problem is just Geordi spewing, uh, spewing technobabble. It doesn't do that. Well, do you get the sense that there is any point that if push came to shove, Kirk would have abandoned uh, his missing crew members down on that planet or in that kind of uh, quasar that they were in? Um, I, I just like I, the plot device worked, the, the conceit of the episode worked, but I and I know they did go a little bit over time, but I just think like Kirk would have eventually said, well, screw it if the medical supplies are a day late or a week late. Uh, I don't care if you have the authority to do that. Uh, I'll throw you in your quarters if need be. And I honestly, I, I don't know if the Starfleet would have, uh, say, uh, disciplined Kirk so much if he was able to save, you know, five out of seven crew members that end up on this desolate planet. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't know what this plague on uh, Macus 3 is like, but... You get the sense that Kirk would have found a way, a Kirk maneuver, if you will, to um, somehow extend the time. I mean, just the fact he's like saying to leave, you know, at space normal speed. I'm not exactly sure how fast that is, but it seems very slow. And uh, I don't know that the commissioner would necessarily agree with this, but the, just the fact that he's willing to try to fangle to create more time for himself. I, I think he would have, especially if he thought there was some sort of hope. Yeah, look, I, I, I think if we go back down to the planet as well, um, kind of get into a lot of the uh, the meat of the matter here. Um, one of the things that I, I do appreciate from Spock's perspective, and he, he is kind of played as a very aloof, um, very uh, clueless sort of character, uh, you know, throughout most of the episode, though, is he does have some good points to make, though, and, and he comments on the disregard that, you know, humans have for life, mm -hmm. you know, like, the uh, they weren't red shirts; they were gold shirts. But the guys with the phasers, um, they were just like, "Yeah, let's let's kill these cavemen. See what we can do." Spock wanted to find another way, and he had that quote unquote scientific curiosity when he had to go, or when he felt compelled to go and fetch the body of one of those crew members. Um, was that a logical move? Well, maybe not. You know, and I think that's just a sign of you know Spock kind of going through his own personal journey in this episode too. And I like how, you know, he tries to take a, a logical approach with these giant cavemen and it doesn't work. And you'd see how this kind of rattles him where he says, you know, that's a most illogical reaction. And he says he's not to blame for their unpredictability. But what they're doing here is introducing, I think a really interesting conflict, having, you know, Spock's personality laid out and maybe some of the flaws of him in command and how he learns from them. Because it doesn't feel like he just kind of walks away shrugging his shoulders. It feels like he's a character who's constantly kind of readjusting the game board to try to make sense of how to deal with the situation. And it's something that they would really, you know, hone in on going forward. But I feel like this is the first time they really create a kind of sensational scenario to play it out in. Well, one of the questions I, I had throughout this, though, is, you know, is Spock actually uh, commanding in a logical manner? That is to say, he knows he has a crew of humans that aren't guided only by logic they have emotions how good is it for just crew morale if you're going to disregard the memorial service for a fallen comrade who gave his life to starfleet you know uh it's those sorts of things it kind of brought this question to me like would spock have been good at this exact same period of his life if he had been a captain within the Vulcan expeditionary group rather than within Starfleet do you think he just would make a good Vulcan commander versus uh, a Starfleet commander that needs to learn a little bit more I think he probably would be just because he would be more comfortable dealing with the personnel um, I think it's the the you know what he would view as a rationality of the other people working with him here that throws him off and what makes it so difficult. I don't think the Vulcan, you know, expeditionary groups would be 
behaving like this. It, it, they would be avoiding the sort of, you know, human um, issues that are being raised here. Well, let me throw this to you. You know, I, I think we can agree that uh, Riker, uh, good in command situations. Uh, you know, uh, we even saw him take over the Titan. Uh, we'll get some more of that action in just a few hmm. weeks with Star Trek Lower Decks as well. Looking forward to that. But do you think Riker, that, that means Riker would be good if he was the captain of a Cardassian ship or a Romulan ship? Would he just automatically be a good commander no matter what? Well, we saw that Riker was pretty good on the exchange program on the uh, Klingon ship. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, a Cardassian ship? No, I, like I do think there is an underlying, I think, element of this episode that's never really addressed, um, other than just talking about Spock's logic. But that there are not a lot of alien characters on the Kirk Enterprise. Really, it's just Spock. You know, animated series would adjust that, but here it's just Spock. And you wonder just about sort of the underlying resentments, even of this group of humans having, you know, a Vulcan in command. It's also interesting because it wasn't like Spock had just been assigned to the Enterprise, uh, you know, like months earlier, you know, like I think he had been on the Enterprise at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least five or six years, um, maybe even more than actually, I think even maybe close to a decade at this point. So it is kind of curious that he still had all of these adjustments to make to human behavior. And you, you could say, well, you know, he's uh, culturally different. He's a Vulcan, or at least a half-Vulcan. I just point to the way that it seems as if T'Pol was able to adapt uh, at a much quicker rate. Um, you know, think of her, you know, serving with humans for a year or two versus Spock serving with humans for about a decade. Mm -hmm. Is it because, perhaps, being half-human, Spock has kind of, at this point, put up that sort of wall against the human side, and so there's almost like a low-level resentment about acknowledging sort of these more um you know these human needs that he isn't fulfilling here whereas i feel like to paul is looking at it more as a problem solver and saying okay i need to do this to get them on my side whereas spock has always had that kind of that wall built up that you know a lot of the great spock stories deal with so what you're suggesting it's the whole uh uh family ties situation with uh michael j fox so what was it uh uh something something keaton what was that character's name you know uh, michael p keaton is that alex p keaton alex p keaton yeah. raised by hippies and he uh th this kid grows into kind of a uh reagan republican you know he he's like kind of the conservative kid like if your uh, parents are punk rock you're probably gonna grow into being like a uh a country lover or something like that you know i wonder if that's just the same thing that spock's dealing with too well we see that like spock has pretty much rejected his human side and that's why i feel so bad for amanda <laughs> given all the work she was doing reading him alice in wonderland and all that sort of stuff poor <laughs> amanda but um it's something that they're going to deal with for many more years and they i don't think they necessarily underlined all those points at you know for the character at this point in the run of tos but it feels like this is the first time we're examining it and they don't seem at least yet to be dealing with the human side but i do think there is that element of that character where i mean spock often behaves more vulcan than vulcan to borrow a, a term loosely from a white zombie song um like i don't think a lot of vulcans are like spock even like some of them seem a little more laid back than he is well uh, the the other curious thing though is like it's not as if he gets along with his father at all mm -mm. like they just do not see eye to eye and you know like sarek is a very vulcan you know uh well, his person the right word, but he's a very Vulcan Vulcan. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I, it just shows me that that's, uh, Spock is a character of complexity. Like he's not one note, even though, I don't know, you can kind of make the argument that some characters, like how, how many notes was, uh, you know, Sulu or Chekhov, you know, back in the day that, you know, like they weren't super layered. They didn't have those opportunities, but whenever Spock got, uh, and Leonard Nimoy got the opportunity, I mean, he, he seized it, you know, like they really developed him into somebody who's truly fleshed out. And I don't know if they would have known at this point how popular Spock is because he became like the breakout character and just the bags and bags of letters. But if it wasn't really known yet, it feels like it's episodes like this that very much kind of launch that fandom. You know, it's just 
having a character on your screen who feels so different, but so instantly understandable as a character. He doesn't feel like muddy. And that's something you and I have talked about with some other Star Trek shows where characters feel muddy and kind of not underdeveloped, but just a little too loosely developed where you can't quite get a good grasp on who they are. Whereas like Spock, you really know who he is in this episode. So like, even when, you know, they're going at him about doing proper burials, I can feel the frustration from his point of view. Yes. Well, in his mind, he's like, I am trying to save your life. Yes. You know, what is the point of trying to memorialize somebody if it's just going to slow down our progress on getting off this planet and more lives could be in danger? We're surrounded by giant cavemen. We have limited capacity. And he knows that the Enterprise has to leave within like a few days. I, to him, it's all logical, but he's not really taking account how, you know, you know, like I said, maybe he just needs to keep their morale going, if only to get the best work out of people, too. Well, and Yeoman uh, Mears says we could use a little inspiration um, at a certain point. And that's something that you never speak. You never really see Spock doing in this episode. He's very matter of fact, and he's obviously a genius at problem solving. But he's never rallying his people. And I think that's his biggest fault here is that he just never has that moment of really addressing them as a group. Well, and going back to like one of the things that you had mentioned, Spock is a very popular character. And I think uh, by, by this point, it was very clear. Is he designed as kind of a, a frustrating character purposely on this episode? Or are audiences in his court enough? that they can get behind some of his frustrating behavior that they know just wouldn't, you know, jive well with like a regular group of humans. Well, I think what this show does, this episode, is actually in some ways more interesting than that. I think if you're, look, if you are a Spock diehard, you're going to probably understand Spock's point of view. If you are a McCoy diehard, you're probably going to see it through his point of view. But I think that's one of the genius elements of this episode is that you can actually bounce back and forth and understand both characters' arguments. And, you know, you remove Kirk from the situation. Because in the triumvirate, Kirk is the one who takes the advice from both Spock and Bones and kind of finds the kind of the, the guiding path between the two. Whereas here, I think in every moment where where McCoy was, you know, talking to Spock, I was able to put myself in McCoy's situation and say, what he's saying is correct. Like the way that Spock is handling his people is not really great in terms of like rallying a team and problem solving. Whereas I also can then understand Spock's response. I think this show is actually really almost ne like next level on how it's dealing with the characters, especially in comparison to a lot of the um, TOS episodes that come before. One of the things that I also want to unpack about this is the role of Beaumont uh, here, uh, played by one Don Marshall. You know, I, and I, I think you, we just have to say, you know, this is the 1960s. Um, I don't know how many opportunities an actor of color is having to play a very smart, uh, genius kind of uh, person, very uh, competent at what they're doing, you know, uh, an officer within this elite corps. And it, it's interesting because you have, you know, McCoy and you have Scotty Moore in the background here. You really have Beaumont serving as kind of this rational adversary to Spock as well. And, and I was kind of wondering, like, why wasn't, say, McCoy more in that role? Why wasn't even Scotty more in that role? I think they were there more for kind of functional purposes. And because I, I think a, a lot of the times people could, you know, be suspicious, you know, is McCoy really going to die? Is uh, Scotty really going to die? Probably not. If you have a character that is coming off as perfectly, you know, rational in this situation, perfectly logical as well in trying to address the human factor, I think you rally behind this character. And I, I think you are, that the tension builds if, what if this great character uh, may not make it out of this situation? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, is there is a suspense level in terms of Boma, because you watch a couple of the other characters, Latimer and um, Katano, get killed. So, it's very like possible that the same could happen to Boma, especially because they apparently have to leave three people behind that two are down. We don't know who the third could possibly be in this situation. And I should say this episode's loosely based on the movie um, five came back from 1939, where it's kind of the same problem where they have to leave people behind. And this episode finds ways out of that situation. The movie doesn't. So what I appreciate is that it does build up that tension for Boma. But also one of my favorite moments is, you know, you're saying how, 
McCoy in some ways takes a back seat as well as Scott. I really enjoy that moment where Boma kind of goes at Spock about the burials. And that's when actually uh, McCoy and Scotty both jump in in defense of Spock. So it kind of ch uh, shows the chain of command where when it actually comes to a lesser ranking character, you know, barking at Spock, the two superiors jump in. But they're also more than willing to, in private, you know, situations, talk to Spock about how they don't think he's performing well as a leader. I thought that was really interesting. Well, one of my favorite moments was when uh, they're deciding, like, who might make it off the planet. And Spock was like, well, I am in command, so obviously I'll be one of the people getting off here. <laughs> like, so like, much for eh. the captain goes down with the ship. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. And uh, Tyler, you and I have met Don Marshall, actually, in Las Vegas. He's passed away for a couple of years now. But back in the day, you and I actually saw him. Yeah, it was interesting. So we saw him on a panel uh, in, in the main uh, ballroom at Vegas. Uh, it was interesting. It was kind of the stars, uh, well, the, the guest stars of the original series up there on stage. And uh, you, you and I, uh, we were walking through the casino, I think, later that day. And uh, Don Marshall, like, I, I, I came there, I, I, I kissed his butt, and um, I, I talked to him. And you could really tell that he was touched. Like, he, he said so. That Like, I think he knew it was just good to have like a young whippersnapper like you or me just kind of uh singing his praises and like he played like a pretty cool like legitimately interesting like character that didn't really have that much more of a legacy within the star trek canon so it's just great that he knew that it, it did have kind of an impact on people for you know i think it was like 50 years at that point yeah and also a character that has a lot to do. Like, you could completely understand Boma being a series regular. That's one thing I really like about TOS is when they establish some of these, you know, one-episode characters, how it feels like they could easily slot in week to week. I would totally... Like, it kind of... It bugs me a little bit that we didn't really see more of him. Like, uh, I don't recall him in any other TOS episode, do you? No, he's not in any others, unfortunately. Yeah, they, they could have even brought him back for, like, kind of a one-off... Uh... And the motion picture where it's pretty much like everybody from the original series is just waving their hands in the rec room or something. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just kind of a lost opportunity uh, on, on the part of the writing staff there. And speaking of missed opportunities, I really regret not getting a autographed photo from him in Vegas because obviously he's passed on. Now, that is one thing I recommend to anyone going to a Star Trek con. If there's like a older Star Trek star who you maybe want to do an autograph or photo, do it at the time because you just never know. I, I, I'm, I am crushed. Like, we are uh, recording this uh, right after news that uh, Dusty Hill, uh, ZZ Top fame, that the bassist, uh, he just passed away. Cam, you got to see him live in concert. They were going to play uh, close to Vancouver. I, I was going to go, and then the, the pandemic happened. I, I've never been able to, you know, see one ZZ Top uh, in concert. And I, it looks as if I'll never, well, I, I won't ever be able to see Dusty Hill, you know, play live. So it's just, you got to seize those opportunities when you can. Yeah, that's one of my great regrets is not buying tickets to see Prince when he came to Vancouver. And that's also why I turned around and bought tickets for the Elton John uh, farewell tour that's coming to Vancouver in 2022. Because I was like, I can't repeat my Prince mistake. Well, and it's also why you've uh, declared that you're going to go to all the Olivia Rodrigo shows that you can, just on the off chance that uh, this 18-year-old passes away uh, at, at any moment. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't even know who that is. I'm too old. You don't? Even I know who, who Olivia Rodrigo is. I have no idea. <laughs> She's like the hottest pop star at the moment. Sir. That means nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, here, here's something I'll, I'll throw you away. Um, what other show uh, with this conceit of an episode, you know, kind of crash land on a planet, uh, only so many people can make it off, what show would do this one justice better than any other series within the Star Trek uh, franchise? Oh, that is an excellent question. And I'm just going through my mind now because obviously they go back to this sort of well a lot um, in the various Star Trek spinoffs. Um for some reason, Heart of Stone is like the episode that's popping into my mind, but that's not the best example. That's just the one that's really popping out to me. Is there any that for you, obviously, you know, you wrote this question or thought of this question maybe in advance. Was there anything that jumped out to you as really great examples? It is funny that you brought up Heart of Stone because in my head, I, I thought that the most opportunity for conflict uh, in such a situation would be Deep Space Nine and it would be kind of Odo within that Spock role for obvious reasons, but also... 
we, we, we see him in those situations before. Uh, you, you recall the episode uh, The Ascent, in, in which uh, Quark and uh, Odo have to make their way up a mountain to get like their uh, subspace transmitter. I'm going to shout out the name of the podcast here. Um, <laughs> a a go-in to get off this planet. And I, I thought that was phenomenal, though. If they threw in a couple extra people and uh, only so many people could uh, get off that planet um, <laughs> and Odo was the one in charge... I think that would have led to some uh, great conflict and drama right there. It is a great premise. I mean, the the 1939 movie does it really well, too. And it's a movie I recommend people check out. I think it's only 75 minutes or so, so it's not a huge time investment. But it's the sort of thing that I, I like when Star Trek kind of hones in on these concepts that you could easily apply it to pretty much any show, but they really find ways to make it very Star Trek-y. Because, again, this is taking a, you know, fairly simple premise and using it entirely as a way of digging into the Spock persona. And I, I'm, try, I'm trying to think, like, did they ever do anything on TNG or, you know, using a character, say, like, War for, you know, the types of characters that are maybe a little more aloof or tougher to dig into? I, I was actually going to pitch you kind of a, a Worf uh, one as well, in which maybe he's there with a bunch of... Uh ensigns that he's training I, I think it could have been a fun one with him and uh, wesley going back and forth as well you know because Worf was only a lieutenant i think everybody else within the main cast other than wesley outranked him any given point um i i wonder you know i i i know it seems super super obvious but what about tuvok in a similar situation i was just gonna say tuvok because i always felt like they didn't do enough with tuvok and I guess there's, you know, the episode where he's on the planet with children. but Yeah, uh, I think that was called Nemesis, if I recall correctly. Uh, isn't Nemesis the one with Chakotay? The one where it's like combat in like the jungle or something? You are correct, yes. Um, the one with children, I think it has the word like sacred in it. Or All I know is like the, the alien species where people reverse uh, backward or age in reverse. Yeah. You know, kind of Benjamin Button, so that's why they're children when they're really more like old people being uh, kicked onto their equivalent of an iceberg uh, at the time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, wonderful episode. But the thing is, with I didn't like it that much. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm being sarcastic. But uh. um, with Tuvok, it felt like they didn't know how to tell Tuvok stories. But I actually think maybe you could have done something interesting with this sort of scenario and him and Neelix because it felt like they wanted to pair him and Neelix but in a situation like this you really would have that combination of Neelix is a very emotional character and and uh, Tuvok is very logical so you could have done a bit of a redo there but also examined the personalities a little more because that's something that I, I always felt like the episodes where they paired those two up, it's not like they were great character showcases. It's not like they were yeah. really digging into interesting things. They were like putting them on elevators. I think, yeah, Rise was not a good one. No. Um, it would have been interesting if they threw the Doctor into that situation as well with his mobile emitter at the time. Uh, it's also maybe uh, Tuvok dealing with Seven of Nine. Like you have three people that he clearly... Um, uh, kind of not necessarily like he he does outrank them but they're not necessarily uh typical members of starfleet like seven of nine isn't in starfleet uh nor is neelix and the doctor is just a hologram you know and so if he's dealing with those folks kind of pushing back at him and <laughs> throw in those uh loser officers from good shepherd as well i think you'd have like a banging episode of voyager right there I mean, Star Trek repeats itself all the time, so there's no reason I, they could have We've never discussed that. that on the podcast. I don't <laughs> yeah. know what you're talking about. Like three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it would have been a really good scenario. But I, I was curious also with this episode, what you thought of the world building. Because, again, this is like 1960s TV, but I feel like the whole world they create here on uh, this planet, uh, Taurus 2, is really, it's simple, but it's really effective. But, but there's even, like, just easy kind of exposition dumps that they did when, like, the uh, Shuttlecraft Columbia returned and the lieutenant there was filling Kirk in on those uh, cavemen. And he's just, like, saying that there are similar sorts of cavemen, um, but much smaller on other planets. And, he, he, like, kind of giving us the rundown and, and kind of building that world as well. Um, also, I, I think it was also just kind of genius on the part of the producers where instead of having these cavemen that could have looked very dumb if you got a good glimpse of them, 
you never really got a good glimpse of them. Like, uh, you saw their spears being thrown um, quite frequently. And <laughs> other than that, I think we got, like, one or two just brief glimpses of them, and one of which was from, like, the back. Yeah, you get, um, I guess, maybe the best face shot of the one that's, like, shaking the Galileo 7. Yeah. But by and large, they just kind of loom, and I think the fog effects are actually a really great choice. And maybe part of that is budget. But it doesn't matter. It just adds to the atmosphere and that these characters feel kind of cloaked in mist and you don't know what's out there. Are these characters, these cavemen, underrated in the realm of TOS aliens? Because a lot of TOS aliens are hugely iconic, whereas I feel like these guys don't really get their shout out. Uh, they're above space hippies in my book, for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, no, no, I, I think you're right yeah. in, in that. Um, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily see people in cosplay as these folks, but all you have to do is kind of dress like a caveman and carry a spear with you at a convention, and you've got it right there. Yeah, and um, which you basically did dressing up for <laughs> for your Star Trek costume that year at Halloween, which no one got. Um, like Cam, you recall every like we we, we were like bar hopping or uh, we were on transit as well and. I just got a, a lot of people come up to me saying, like, what are you supposed to be? Because they recognize the uh, Starfleet uniform, but they had no idea why I had, like, a, a, a wig, a caveman wig on with, like, a bone in the hair. And, like, um, it, it was not one of my better uh, thought-out costumes for mainstream audiences. Although I think you won the costume contest at the bar we ended up at that year. Did you not? Yes, if you want to win, don't dress as a Star Trek character. And we should say you were dressing as um, Genesis Riker, um, where he's like a caveman. But yes, uh, I went with Nightcrawler from the X-Men, which is uh, much easier to identify. <laughs> Cam, uh, re, re, like, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I was booed off stage during the costume contest, was I not? Correct, yes. Yeah, so there you go, people. <laughs> yeah that's my experience as a star trek fan out in public deep pulls not the best for like a rowdy bar <laughs> on halloween I know. I know. What, what, what would be the worst deep pull for oh. a costume contest at a rowdy this was a rowdy bar though this is malone's in downtown vancouver for those that don't know they also the same owners own the Camby, which is known as kind of um one of those real working man sort of bars um what would be just kind of the weirdest awkward pull to do would it be flaking Odo from that two-parter <laughs> in which uh, uh, Garrick was uh, interrogating him? Maybe that um, kind of large rotund fellow from And the Children Shall Lead who's controlling the children. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one who I think was a lawyer in real life or something who was involved with like a very significant trial. So maybe that maybe that character. You see, Oh, didn't um, Brian Cox play him in uh, Zodiac too? um yeah you know what i think he did yeah that does ring a bell yeah i'm forgetting to say i think his name was melvin something but uh he was kind of like um i don't know the johnny carson of his day back johnny, in the 60s. Car johnny carson or jo johnny cochran <laughs> <laughs> could be both perhaps both sir he's like putting on the great karnak hat and trying to guess at, like what's on a card <laughs> i like how i said um johnny carson of his day back in the 60s you mean Johnny Carson? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah, deep pulls. Yeah. Not great, unless you're uh, at the biggest Star Trek convention in the world in Las Vegas. <laughs> One thing I thought was a little if uh, iffy with these uh, cavemen, though, was the scale. Because they talk yeah. about how they're like 12 feet high, um, and the spears are enormous. <laughs> like, enormous. And I'm like... I don't know that that lines up with the one I saw hovering over um, that one crew member. Yeah, I, I, and also I think they're just like like too, um, this isn't the perfect word, but too girthy for um, cavemen that are 12 feet high, you know? Like just like these are thick, thick spears. Yeah, they really are, and they don't seem particularly aerodynamic. Well, I also got to laugh when like they were just the moment in the episode where they're chucking spears as hard as they could uh, at Spock as he ran away uh there's like i don't know like eight went through the screen all at once and uh because we're watching this in hd now um you can see that uh, one of the spears broke off some of the styrofoam rock yes that, uh what made up the set and i i got a laugh out of that 
That was great. I got a bit. Yeah, I agree. That made me laugh really hard. And I do love that moment after the first crew member's been killed. And, like, everyone's kind of in a tizzy trying to figure out what's going on. And Spock is just, like, doing analysis on the sphere. <laughs> I know. He was just like, yes, it's from New Mexico, North American continent, uh, Earth. <laughs> and everyone's just looking at him like, okay, someone's dead. Didn't he say, like, 1920s or something? I think it's, like, first discovered, 1910. Okay. New Mexico, North America, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, his his plan uh, that eventually got them out of the situation though jettisoning the like what little fuel they had it was an act of desperation and uh, I, I do like the line at the end where I, I forget if it was Kirk but I think it could have been Spock who just eventually said to uh, Spock or sorry uh, I think it was Kirk it could have been McCoy but he eventually said so you reasoned it was time for an emotional outburst like that got a good solid laugh out of me yeah, that was fantastic, and TOS is so good at tension. I always think of um, the Doomsday Machine, the finale of that, but this one has it too, where it is that, you know, venting the fuel to create the distress signal. Um, really great sequence, and yeah, like, do you think this was a moment of Spock willingly letting some of that emotion out, or do you think it was entirely just pre-planned as sort of a logical attempt? I think... You know, it's funny for us to laugh at uh, reasoning your way into an emotional outburst, but I honestly think Spock is like, yeah, I've got nothing left in my arsenal. Why not this? Like, th th like, what else can I really do? And we're descending into the atmosphere at that point, which is just like, um, that sequence is pretty good. Like that descent in the atmosphere, like I, it really does hold up and they drag out the tension with a transporter just enough. You know, th this is like classic filmmaking right here. But I, I don't necessarily think it was an emotional outburst on Spock's part. I don't get that sense either. And do you think it was influenced maybe a little by... You have that moment where they're you know trying to escape from the caveman and a rock pins Spock's leg and the other crew members run back, you know, putting their own health at risk to, to free him. Do you think that has any weight on his decision here at the end? Huh, that's a very good question. I, I think what was weighing on him is how illogical it was that they would do that, where it, it makes far more sense for them to ditch him, lose even more weight from the shuttle, uh, because they're more likely to just get themselves killed by trying to get him unpinned. I think that sticks with him, you know? I don't know if that was necessarily uh, the, the driving factor in his decision to jettison the fuel, though. The one thing it shows, though, is that an irrational display could work. Because the thing is, they run back to save him, um, you know, dodge spears and what have you, but they still manage to get everyone out alive. Uh, dodge spear sounds like uh, a car made back in the 1990s, does it not? <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Cam, I, you know, I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming Star Trek convention, but before we dive into that, any final thoughts on what makes Galileo 7 just such a classic episode? Well, I want to touch just on one brief thing that actually kind of got a laugh out of me, which was um, um, when, you know, there's search parties going out from the Enterprise and Kirk brings up uh, Lieutenant Kellowitz on the view screen, who has been on one of these missions down to the planet. And this man looks like hell. <laughs> it's almost like a cartoon. He needs to be, like, missing one tooth and have, like, a black ring around one eye. Like, I burst out laughing just seeing this character who looks like he's been through hell. It really does seem as if, like, he walked through the wrong part of town. That town being <laughs> caveman town or something. Like, it, yeah. it was rough. It was very um, rough. <laughs> but no, I mean, as for what makes this episode special, I think it is that focus on Spock and understanding that not every episode needs to be Kirk-centric. Even though he's your lead, you can hand these stories over to your second here, you know, in Leonard Nimoy, and you're going to get a really compelling, fascinating character study that has genuine tension and that the audience is invested in. I don't know that we get some of the episodes coming up, like Amok Time or This Side of Paradise, if an episode like this doesn't prove that Spock can like lead an episode, especially with a character who is in theory all logic. I feel like an all logic character is something that might scare writers because it's like, oh, how do we make this dramatic? I think this episode kind of proves the concept can work. 
I I also wonder if just being stuck in kind of that box, you know, of a character and what you have to devise ways creatively of making such a character compelling, that might be actually pretty juicy and tantalizing for writers, you know, just like, I, you know, kind of, the, you know, what, what do they say about like, yeah, the, the worst thing for creativity is just like unlimited resources. I, I'm totally mangling that uh, quote there, but um, I, I think they probably have fun working within that, uh, those Spock parameters. Yeah. And, you know, you say about limited resources, you look at the finale in this where they're just in that shuttle and there's no windows. Um, did you watch the um, upgraded version or the original effects? Oh, I watched the upgraded. For so sure. did I. Um, I should have gone back and actually watched the original. But nonetheless, like all the tensions there and it's just entirely through the performance and the direction. And that's something that really Star Trek benefits from ongoing you know, not necessarily once you get to the, like the Discovery or your Picard shows, but right through the whole Berman era, a lot of those classic Star Trek shows were, you know, really relying on minimal effects when they could and just set work and actors. For sure. Well, Cam, I think if you've made it this far, I, I hope we've inspired you to go rewatch Galileo 7. You really find why this is kind of one of those more under-the-radar classics. And, um, just just a, a little bit of a tangent, but um, we have the uh, upcoming Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. 55-year mission is in August. Um, you and I will not be attending. Uh, it was canceled last year. Uh, so this is the first time in who knows how many years, since at least for you, I think 20 what, 2012 or 2011? Um, and uh, for me, I think since 2013 that uh, I've not attended. Um, it, it's, it's a bummer, but um, does this sound like a fun event to you if everybody's wearing masks, um, surging cases of COVID-19 in Nevada? You and I are both fully vaccinated, but I, I'm not sure if I want to be kind of a, a Delta variant breakthrough case guinea pig at this point. Um, I'm hoping by next year... Uh, everything can kind of, you know, be more in order. I don't know. But um, what's your takeaway, like the potential for, you know, Star Trek conventions moving forward? Oh, it's so rough. I mean, you should also mention that, um, you know, photo ops are going to be done with plexiglass between the actor and the, uh, and, you know, the person buying the ticket. Um, I don't know how autographs will work. It is really rough because Star Trek cons, particularly, you know, like the big Vegas one, are really expensive. Um, you can understand why a lot of fans, you know, can't afford to go or, um, it's the sort of thing they only do every handful of years. So it is a bummer that like this year, the fans who are going maybe getting a compromise experience for a pretty hefty price tag. Um, I can say like we had a hotel booked because we were unsure of what the situation would be and the hotel was going to cost us more this year than it had in past years. So it's not like this Star Trek con was going to give people a break financially. If anything, it was going to be more expensive than past. So, uh, I mean, well wishes to those who are, who are going, but it does raise a lot of questions just going forward about how these cons will work. Um, we are, fingers crossed, hoping to be at the um, Chicago con in April. It does start to make me wonder just going forward, like what are autographs like? What are photo ops like? Um, I just don't know. There's so many question marks and so much uncertainty, but I'm really mournful of the fact that Star Trek conventions could be not what I got to experience in the past, and that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, I, and I think what we worry, though, is I, I don't see a lot of signs uh, of how this might turn itself around in the near future, uh, just in terms of a lot of vaccine hesitancy in the U.S., um, versus Canada. If they want to have a convention here in Vancouver, I think you and I would feel comfortable with that. But I'm not so sure if I necessarily want to travel to another country and where restrictions are a little looser, you know. But as you said, even if they had one in Vancouver, I think masks would probably be mandatory. I think, you know, those photo ops would be a little different. But I would feel um, less fearful about the potential for me to catch COVID-19 as well. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But in terms of the Vegas one, too, so much of the um, event also exists outside of the event itself. It's so much of a social, you know, social party for fans, just the bars around there and everything. And it just feels like you're not going to get that experience this year, which for us was always a big part of it. Our friends, you know, and us were always out every night. And 
I hope the fans who are going are able to have an experience that they come back and are happy with. But boy, it's just, I mean, you and I, I think both agree we're going to be glued to social media the week <laughs> of just because like, I don't even know what this con is. That's the thing. Like, and that's one thing we haven't touched on actually is that actors are dropping out left, right and center for this thing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just genuinely fascinated what the experience is because I can't really wrap my head around what it is right now. Well, our group, a, a lot of international people, I think uh, there's a couple Americans in our group, but it's mostly people from Canada and the United Kingdom. Um, and I, I think there are just too many question marks for us to kind of co convince ourselves things would work out and commit to going, whether it had to deal with flights, you know, passports, what have you. Um, and even if we went, I don't know, like, would we not just kind of feel on edge a lot of the time just with all the uncertainty if they can pull off a convention this year and it goes off swimmingly with all of the kind of the restrictions in place and hopefully things get better uh, a year from now i am all for it like uh, i just don't want to be the guinea pig that that's all yeah yeah it's that's not a, a gig that i would typically sign up for in most situations <laughs> <laughs> I, I can believe you. So, um, yeah, so this is our long-winded way of saying um, don't come to our panel because we won't be having one, uh, unfortunately. I, I think, what did, did we do like four panels over the last couple of years, Cam? I think so. That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, we've probably done about four. Um, and it is a bummer to have not done them the last, now, you know, this summer and, pa and last summer because they're always a good excuse to get out and meet people that listen to the podcast and just kind of Bring this magic to the people. <laughs> magic, huh? Sure. Magic to make the sanest man go mad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tyler, what are we doing next week? Cam, we are officially ranking the highest ranked episodes of Star Trek. There are so many classics uh, across the entire canon of different shows. We've only ever covered these kind of rankings, you know, series by series. It is actually time for us to actually give people kind of the official down low on what are the best based on rankings that uh, we'll be culling from a, a variety of sources but i don't think anyone's going to disagree with the uh the ones that will be made available and we'll, we'll have uh certain rules that we'll go uh through and make very clear during this as well well we better figure out the title of that two Vok and children episode <laughs> 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 yes okay you can of course find us on the twitter I'm at Cam, V is in, view screen. Show me Lieutenant Kilowitz Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-T -T, as in throwing spears, O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. I guess you moved on really easily. Transfer complete.